Hello, and welcome to Little Pine Tree Studio Productions. This is our first podcast series. I am your host, Dodie Perditas, and this is The Mysteries of Creativity Explored. I want to invite you, our listeners, to join me and my guests as we delve into the journeys that help us understand what happens in the process of making ideas and dreams and realities. I would like to welcome back Elise Katabog, and we are going to be exploring the theatrical experience of historic reenactments. And I am going to ask Elise, could you please define that for us before we get involved? Sure. Um, so thank you for having me back. <laughs> Welcome. And historical reenactment is a type of either educational or entertainment activity, mainly done by volunteers who are often um, amateur hobbyists, historical enthusiasts, or even um, professional historians, where we recreate aspects of historical events or time periods. This can be narrow. Um, specific battle, for example, is a very common one, or really broad, um, just like general Regency, Victorian, any major time period. Um, so that's sort of a bit of what I do. Um, I'm thinking now it brings up a lot of questions for me, so I'll just jump right in. Uh, you do historic reenactments. Is there a particular time, era, and or location that are necessary to how you would proceed with a reenactment? Uh, sure. So I reenact with a group. Um, our full, very long name is the 8th, the Kings, Regiment of Foot, Light Company, and the Civilians of Canada. Um, but we call ourselves for short the King's Eighth. Um, oh. This is a rather large, we're growing <laughs> um, group of uh, people who love living history. Um, and we get together to reenact uh, the 18th century lives of the people who lived in the province of Quebec. Um, which is now Ontario and Quebec, in a variety of different ways. Um, so, so you're so you you are pretty much doing that particular era, are you? You're you. Yes. Okay, so that's our, part of that. And, our and are focus those is people, like the. Sorry, you go. I'm just. Gonna, are are they all Canadian living in Canada that you're working with? Yes, most of us live in southern Ontario. Some of us live in Quebec. Mm -hmm. um, all of us sort of live in this sort of strip along the bottom <laughs> of Ontario um, and or Quebec. Um, and we reenact in groups. Not all of us can re get to every event, but we try to, to go to as many events as possible together. The reenactment, though, is pretty limited to Canada, or is there any history to that part of it? Uh, would you be stepping back? outside of Canada preparing for that time or are you already here so the, the, your characters <laughs> we don't have any set characters so they change depending on the event that we do oh, for I the see. most part we are focusing on the time period of the American Revolution when British forces and rebel um, American forces were fighting right. um, coming from Canada and because of the, the the region that we are in, um, we represent the British side of this battle. Uh, but we also do this in different ways. So sometimes it's very much focused on military life, but sometimes it's focused on the civilian life of, um, you know, people who weren't following the army or part of the army. And sometimes it's just us getting together to do, you know, maybe some gambling, maybe some <laughs> being together just to talk about um, our plans. So it, it's, it, there's a lot of different things that we do together. Um, and it can look different 
depending, very different, depending on what kind of event we are volunteering at. What motivated you, Elise, to get involved with this? I've always been very fond of history. Um, I found that to be one of the most fascinating subjects. Um, and also, you know, growing up, there is a, we have our own living history thing, quite, um, quite local to mm -hmm. where we are in the Great Toronto area, Black Creek Pioneer Village. I loved going there as a child and talking to the reenactors oh, um, and, and seeing their work. And initially, that was actually the time period that I wanted to participate in. But Black Creek Pioneer Village has a very sort of strict uh, regimen for their volunteers because they are a um, a permanent living history location. So people pay to come in. And as a result, they're a bit more strict about um, how their reenactors interact with the public. And I, at the time, did not have enough free time to dedicate four months to just volunteer <clears throat> on the regular. So instead, I decided to join the King's Eighth, who were um, the only local group focusing on the 18th century, which I personally found to be the most interesting. Um, and that is how I ended up getting into it. How did you meet the group? I searched up Canadian reenactment mm -hmm. on different social media websites. Oh, and they were quite active so I knew that they were you know out and doing stuff um I emailed them I met with their civilian coordinator uh Trisha who is extremely knowledgeable and talented <laughs> and um I really liked what she was telling me and I ended up joining what is the age range of your fellow actors there is a super wide range um so technically if we're counting uh everyone who might come on to these events our youngest member is an infant oh <laughs> coming with their her parents obviously uh -huh. um, and there are definitely people who are quite old in their 60s 70s even 80s who come out and reenact so it really is a all age range activity <laughs> Uh -huh. <laughs> um, I would say most of us, though, are in our 20s to 40s. So there are a lot of people who have time to do this in, in your particular group. That was important to yes. you. And that's kind of a bond that you all share. So you would be understanding of each other's situations. Uh, who's the planner, did you say, who actually so, designs the shows that you will do? So. We travel around. Most reenactment groups um, are do not have a specific um, place that we work with. Mm -hmm. um, what we have, well, our leader, our leaders, the well, I call them our leaders, the people who yes. created and organize our group and sort of keep us all in line and are sort of undermining <laughs> everything, are right. a um, married couple, Trisha and Marcio de Cunha. Um, they are sort of in charge of making liaisons with, um, sites that might want to host us. Um, currently we have a very good relationship with the people over at Fort Niagara, just on the other side of the border. Um, and we've done plenty of events there. This is a place where the, the King's Eighth have been recorded as um being present and like spending time living and fighting there um and also with fort i might pronounce this incorrectly fort mitchell mackinaw out in by lake superior um that is i think also a place where there may have been evidence of uh the king's eighth having lived and worked and as well as different battles where we know that the King's Eighth fought in. And sometimes we also do battles and events where the King's Eighth was not present, um, just to help flesh out the numbers a bit. But it really is dependent on 
having good relationships with historical sites, having good relationships with other reenactment groups, and the uh, time and care and effort that our team leads kind of put into into making sure that we always have something fun to do and that we're getting out and being seen and getting to interpret to the public. Very interesting. I noticed that you said across the border Mm -hmm. and whereabouts across the border do you work? So you're working in collaboration with a a site there. Yes. If you would like, could you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. Um, The States in particular has a very good track record of really preserving their historic sites and keeping them actively open. So what I mean by that is we have a lot of forts in Canada, but a lot of them um, don't have reenactors in them. They don't really host many events. Um, Sometimes they might do something, but it's not really the same as it is in the States. Across the border, we have a lot of forts that are constantly running activities, um, very well preserved. A lot of the original buildings are still standing. They put time and effort into making them look good. Um, So we often do events over there. And also due to the nature of the Revolutionary War, armies were moving around. So the King's Eighth was recorded in being at tons of different locations. And so we have lots to pull from. Is this this all New York State or are, are you going further afield? We go further afield sometimes. Um, Personally, I've mostly done events at Fort Niagara. Um, and then I've done a couple, um, in Montreal and then a couple down sort of in that, not quite New York state, but in the surrounding area, the surrounding states, that sort of East coast portion. Right. Um, and I think that is where we mostly focus our attention is in that sort of East coast, lower part of Ontario and Quebec right. area. That is really quite interesting. I'm sure you have a lot of history to share with people. Um, Do you think that creativity is part of being a a reenactor and how? Because, and this brings up for me, the question is, where does the dialogue come from? I think it really depends on the kind of event that you're doing. It could be more creative or less creative, depending on what kind of interaction you're doing with the public. So there are times when you are doing more of a performative type of thing, um, and that might involve, you know, more creating dialogue on the fly. Um, I know a lot of the soldiers in battles sometimes will pause to let mm-hmm. um, someone give a. Usually, the British, if we're in the if we're if we're reenacting <laughs> in the states, they'll pause to give like one of the British generals time to give like a particularly villainous speech before we uh, eventually lose. It pleases the uh, it pleases the American audience, um, uh, and. Sometimes, um, even though we're not necessarily talking a lot, we can do a lot of physical acting of being, um, you know, scared in battle, lots of running and screaming from the women as we are uh, fleeing from approaching uh, American rebel soldiers. Um, But there are also times when the focus really is just that like nitty gritty giving information Um, If, for example, one of the things that I have done is I have demonstrated um, ways of cooking. So for that, I I do research into, you know, which um, recipe is historically accurate and how do I have the supplies to to put it together in a way that is um, in line with how they did it in the 18th century. Um, And then while I do that, people can come in and then they tend to ask questions um, about what I'm doing and the history behind it, and I do my best to answer. So in those cases, um, it is less creativity and more my ability to 
do good research and translate that into clear and um, informative dialogue with the public. So you actually provide your own materials and you're acting in a volunteer capacity for this? Yes. Yes. Okay. So, and costume, again, as we talked about in LARPing, the costume situation would come up again for this. Oh, yes. Um, in, in, in historical reenactment, um, depending on how strict your uh, group is, and ours is quite strict, we believe quite seriously in giving the best impression possible. Um, it is very important to put a lot of careful thought into your costuming. Um, I prefer to play um, lower class roles versus upper class roles. Uh, I find it just more comfortable and more fun <laughs> uh, and more in line with the type of reenactment that I like to do. Um, but everything is hand done if possible. Um, I try to hand sew as much as I possibly can. It takes time, but then you have so much pride in what you made and it does last longer. Um, when you put the time and effort into sewing it together properly than if you just go and buy something um, from the store. Uh, there is also a lot of research that goes into what is appropriate for the time period and the class that you're portraying. Um, sometimes I put that much effort into a costume for LARP, but I'm, I'm when it comes to LARP, I'm not stressing about oh, is this exactly the kind of fabric and cut that would have been used in this specific year? Um, sometimes I bend the rules a little bit because, you know, I I'm not playing the role of an educator then, but in reenactment, I am playing a role as an educator and people who are looking at me um, are forming their own opinions about history based on what they see. And so it's my responsibility to make sure that everything about how I'm dressed is in line with what we know to be true um, because you're never going to be 100% historically accurate because we didn't we can't actually go back in time and see what they did but we have to we owe the public um, to try as hard as possible to give them the correct information about what they're seeing. That's very interesting and to tie this together with LARPing uh, if you could give us the definition of LARPing again and perhaps tell us a little bit about the similarities and, di and differences with uh, sure. reenactments. I think it'd be interesting for our listeners again. <laughs> so to, uh, to go over LARP again, LARP stands for Live Action Role Play and is essentially this type of grown-up make-believe, this collaborative storytelling of getting together with people and telling a story um, not quite from scratch, because oftentimes you have characters and the setting given to you, but it, there's no specific way that it could go, um, and you can be a lot more creative about uh, the direction that you take it in. Whereas historical reenactment, while there are sometimes elements of, you know, creating a character and talking to the public as a character you have a deeper responsibility to be giving, to the best of your ability, accurate historical information. That is the purpose of historical reenactment is to bring history to life and deliver it to the public in a way that conveys real facts, but in a way that is a lot more engaging and interesting for the person who is watching what we're doing. Oh, and LARP doesn't have an audience, whereas reenactment almost <laughs> always does. Of course. And that's, uh, again, your, your, do you feel your audience's response? Are you that in touch with how they're receiving you when you're doing the reenactment? Do you get any kind of clues from them how it's going? For sure. I think there's nothing more rewarding than watching a big <laughs> scene and seeing the people, you know, shriek and you know, cheer or boo. Uh, we're always getting booed because we're fish and we're often playing in the States, but it's all good. <laughs> Take it personally. Um, uh, so we can get a lot of sort of visual and sound cues from that, but also from people who, um, depending on the event, sometimes the public can walk up to you and, and ask you questions. Um, and right. so you, get to, you get to hold uh, conversations with people and 
they will, you know, they will sometimes often come with their own assumptions that might not necessarily right. be accurate as to how things were that what we know about history. Um, mm-hmm. And it, and it's fun to sort of share that information and, and maybe, you know, change some minds about <laughs> what it was actually like. Um, but yeah, it's like I said, it, there can be so many different ways to do things. There's like civilian stuff where, you know, everyone, including the men, is wearing like civilian kit. We call kit sort of like um, that's our term for like a, a sort of grouping of costumes and accessories that we use to do um, specific portrayals. So um, someone who is perhaps a bit more advanced might have um, i'm gonna talk about marcio and trisha's kits because they obviously started the group they have a lot more going on trisha is actually a professional seamstress and a historian so she is super talented and super well versed in this and she makes all their costumes so trisha and marcio they have a fisherman and fisherman's wife um kit that they use when they're up um on coastal forts like Michimalakanaw and by Lake Superior they have captain and captain's wife so those are very dressy um, a lot more high-end upper-class accessories and clothing they have um Marcio because he's a man who does soldier stuff although not it doesn't you don't have to be a man to do soldier things um yes. but that's how they split it so he does soldier things and Trisha does more um civilian and camp follower things he has different kinds of um soldiers kits depend like not just for the king's eighth but also for butler's rangers which was another militia group um and then trisha has a whole variety of different kits that she can sort of pick and choose from to give different impressions for me i mostly have one kit (laughs) i have um one outfit and then different accessories that i can cycle in and out to give slightly different impressions Okay. Um, and you use your own wardrobe and that's oh, I guess. for sure. I make oh, everything and buy everything myself. That's that's a very um well you uh, it, it could be expensive, but from what you've said, because you're talented enough to create them yourself and then buying some of them as well. Yes, I think a big portion uh, I, of it is sewing. Um, and the nice thing is, is that while you're reenacting, you can have your costume that you haven't finished <laughs> yet and you can work on it. And that counts as in a, in a lot of places as an, as an acceptable activity that you can do while interacting with the public, which is very nice because <laughs> then you can get uh, a lot done. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm going to ask another question because, um, I think this might come up and I'd really be interested in knowing how you handle this. Uh, you have Asian descent, and I would think when you are starting a role, you want to you have to present it as clearly as as you can or as historically as you can. Is that going to be a problem? Because I would think at that time you were not you would not be able to play certain roles. You would have to play down a little bit. And I wonder with the self confidence and the the successes that you have Mm. in your history is that a problem for you and how do you deal with it um I tend to not clarify what my character well what my background is and I sort of leave it up to the public to make assumptions so far no one has asked specifically anything about me and my racial background um but from looking into history a lot more it wasn't that impossible to have mixed race people in different parts of the world i think it's very common to think that you know every single settler in north america coming from britain was white but there is not necessarily any evidence for that because um, people didn't really pay as much attention as we might think to these sort of things. Um, sure, they might make references uh, to text if someone was mixed race, but it's very, very rarely do they delve into the specific um, race that that person is. 
Um, and so far I've found that it hasn't really impacted how the public interacts with me. Um, there might be small comments here and there, but I tend to just sort of brush those off because it's not important. Um, what is most important for me is that I am delivering um, accurate information. And I find that as long as I'm doing that, the public seems to respond really well to what I have to say. So that I find to be very good. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it's really a good thing that that has not become an issue um, for you. For you or for anybody else, I presume in your group. So it's not ageist or or uh, sexist or there aren't overtones of any of that because, of course, at that time, ageism, sexism, racism, all of those different things were certainly exhibited in different forms. That's I think that's a good way of putting it. Those not that these things didn't exist, but that it's just that they were different. Um, mm -hmm. And the way that they manifested are not necessarily in the ways that they exist today. And I right. think that can be a little bit confusing for some people. Um, I know one of the things that is a little um, interesting to see is that, is that many people coming in, um, a lot of them, their main misconception is about gender roles. Is um, it? Yes. And I think a lot of people expect it to be sort of like a 1950s household sort of <laughs> dynamic where like, oh, the women do all like the 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 homekeeping labor and then the men do all like men's work. But the thing is that a lot of that work didn't exist back then. So oh, sure. Yeah. Women did do laundry for the men um, in, 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 in an army context. Um, there were laundresses who would sort of, you know, some of them were wives of soldiers and they would do the laundry, but they'd be paid for their work. Um, they never did it for free. And a lot of the time soldiers cooked for themselves um, unless they were married, in which case, yeah, maybe their wife might cook for for the family, but it was just for the immediate family. And women could own businesses if their husbands died. Um, so it it it's a lot more varied than people think. Um, it was a lot people... more sharing than just yeah. simply sharing. Yeah. And, and even maybe there's not, so, that's not so well documented in sort of like the, the new world, quote unquote, but there were mixed race marriages. Um, I was at uh, a museum in the Netherlands and I saw a painting of a half, I think she was Japanese woman who married a Dutch man. Um, and that was normal and allowed. And there were mixed race couples all the time. And we can find documentation for this for people who saw, you know, in Britain in the 18th century, you know, a black man and a white woman holding hands. So these things, I think, always existed. And just because they're not in line with how we necessarily think about the past, it doesn't mean that they didn't happen. Um, and I think it's it the, the nice thing about learning more about history is that you learned that it's not so different in some ways to how things are now. And, and in some ways, people did not take things as seriously as they do now. And I think it's a good way to challenge the misconception that the past was always really horrible and terrible and, and dark and bad. There were horrible and terrible and dark and bad things that happened, but that is not the whole picture. Um, and it's important to remember that history is not always what we think at first glance. There's things to discover and learn. And that's the best thing about historical reenactment is learning them for myself and then being able to tell that to other people. Thank you for that. That That is very interesting that you've had that experience to be able to Throw some light on that, both for your audiences at the reenactments and just generally in this podcast. Very interesting. Welcome. So I'm, you've kind of chose, you've already really answered one of my questions. I was just thinking to ask about um, how you educate people about the facts that you're finding out about the history through your, mm -hmm. a lot of it, your is research that you do yourself as well. But then what you bring to that reenactment and what the others who you work with bring as well. So I think mm -hmm. it's a collaboration as well from what 
you were saying. Oh, it is. I'm very lucky that the group that I am in has a lot of people who formally studied history in school, people who went into archaeology programs, people who went through advanced history programs. Um, so I learned so much from them and um, so much from other educated people online. They're, and it's through their help that I am able to interact so confidently with the public. Um, there are a couple different ways of doing this. One is through um, you're going to discuss the strategies that <laughs> yeah yes. okay if that's okay um one of them is through sort of guided demonstrations um that's when we put together a small um demonstration either on you know there's statues for musket shooting for hairdressing oh. <laughs> different sorts of things where we are doing the actions and then someone is sort of explaining what's going on and there's often a little question period afterwards are you able to ask questions oh that's interesting um, there's also more just straight up presentations where someone we have like we pull out the powerpoint which is not very historically <laughs> accurate but pitches are great either powerpoints or like physical picture slides that we can like switch to and show people and oh, pass that's around interesting. Um, and just sort of talk and they can like see different firsthand examples. Um, and then there's also large scale demonstrations. So that would be when, for example, soldiers act out a battle. Um, and that might require very little from uh, the people who are actively participating other than, you know, giving the best performance that they possibly can. <laughs> and then usually there'll be sort of like a questions period after. So it can vary. Sometimes I'm interacting a lot directly with um, the the people. Sometimes they're just watching as I'm doing something or having something done to me. If someone's doing like a hair demonstration um, or like a dressing demonstration, pointing out different aspects of my outfit and talking about it. And sometimes it requires absolutely nothing and I can just sort of sit and do my thing while they watch and then someone else can explain what they're seeing. Um, so it, it really does depend. Um, so it sounds like you fun. you create a, 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 the ambiance between your audience and yourself can be very fun and light and interesting while you do learn the heavy heavier aspects of what the war is were like mm -hmm. or the, the times were like that kind of brings it home to even having some girly talk at the same time <laughs> yeah I think um, history is heavy but it doesn't have to be very right. serious all the time and I think right. in terms of getting people to really listen to what you're saying it sometimes it's better to go at it from a sort of more playful standpoint yes. oh yes obviously I am not um our group doesn't discuss very heavy topics. For example, I am not well versed in what it is like to reenact slavery, for example. So um, I have never had to really work in a context where the subject matter was like very quite heavy and quite serious. Um, the most serious that we get is talking about, you know, people tragedies happen people who starved to death people who died in battle um but i know i think specifically for as a british reenactor i think it's important to understand that like in the states some people have very specific ideas and thoughts about what went on in the revolutionary war very specific ideas and thoughts about how the british were compared to the uh, american soldiers um and it's important to sort of sort of read how they feel about things because you don't want to offend someone's personal ideas but you also want to be truthful so there's a bit of a line to toe um, right. where sometimes people don't necessarily like what you're telling them but it's important to say <laughs> i guess we can learn in both directions i remember living in the states well we were studying in in the states mm -hmm. for a while and the kids, Alex's father, one of them, were outside playing on the street. And 
the good guys, of course, were the Americans and the bad guys were the British. And I had never seen, you know, we've oh. always been in the opposite situation. So, well, I mean, it, it you know, it was very, very lightly done. And, and, and of course, fortunately, we were in kind of an enlightened group who also saw kind of the humor in that for, for us, because there were a lot of Canadians there too. But uh, it, it was just like, makes you stand back and look at it from a different perspective, oh, yeah. doesn't it? Uh, it does. Wherever, wherever you, you are. Uh, and, and I, that moment has sort of stayed with me and it was lightning. It truly was. I had to mm -hmm. rethink about things. So. <laughs> yeah, I think the way it goes in, in times of conflict is that it's, and the way that we go about it as historical reenactors is that there is no really like a good side or a bad side. Um, and to sort of avoid that sort of language, I think people yes, really yeah. want there to be like a very specific bad person that they can like point out and be like, oh, yeah, you're bad. But the, the truth is a lot messier and that rarely is there one group that is all bad and one group that is all good. Um, and that I think be... that certain that certainly describes what I see as a more modern mm -hmm. outlook. We don't talk about the good guys and the bad guys. <laughs> and it, it gets in the way of sort of i think oh yeah understanding but, history yeah it's just you know young kids tend to think yes. that way if they're playing games but uh, beyond that uh I, I think there are some people though who, who genuinely come into reactment events with a very specific idea that like the british side was like all bad um and they're entitled to their beliefs but i'm also entitled to be like listen we're kind of all the same <laughs> <laughs> There are ways in which they were different for sure, but, you know, the British, the British civilians and the American civilians were not that different, <laughs> as you might think. And the British soldiers and the American soldiers also weren't that different. There was a lot of similarities going on um, and differences in opinion do not necessarily mean differences in the value of what the history can teach us. Um, I think it's still important to learn about history that you're necess not necessarily interested in, because I think the more you but, know, um, the better informed you are. And, and theater, I I have to think, in in a lot of its forms, is it is what communicates it to a lot of people. Like it just brings it alive. We can read as oh, many yeah. history books as we want, and we can be really interested from that kind of cerebral way. But I think you've got You've got to feel it a bit. And yeah. theater gives you that opportunity for, for sure. I will just ask you before we leave this and move on to your event planning. Uh, what do you enjoy most? And of course, what do you enjoy least in the reenactment? This is going to sound perhaps a little bit bad. But oh. <laughs> the thing that I enjoy the most is actually when the reenactment ends and we can just sort of hang out together in our kit. Um, that is always the most fun for me. Um, not that I don't enjoy talking to the public, not that I don't enjoy demonstrating, but there is a very special kind of enjoyment that comes from just getting to be in the camp that we've created or be in the fort that we've been invited to, um, cook a 18th century accurate dinner. <laughs> and play some activities and just talk. Um, it's the perfect blend, I think, of getting to spend time with friends um, where we all like sort of the same things and getting to just talk about um, different ideas and um, different interests in terms of history and uh, non-historical <laughs> pastimes and also enjoying, you know, the environment of being in a historical setting and enjoying historical activities, um, I think. That is and extremely in, satisfying for me. <laughs> and that you've worked together on a common theme. Mm. And that's yeah. satisfying that you've, you've contributed to really maybe enlightening a lot of people. Certainly some. And uh, yeah, just and, getting to chat history with people. That yes. part is also a lot of fun. I would say the part that is perhaps the least enjoyable is... Um, people who aren't open to learning and like just kind of want you to confirm what they already think about history oh the, yes um, i can that understand can get a little bit frustrating <laughs> um but for the most part yeah i i do i love all aspects of it but i especially love when we get to sort of 
you know, take our hair down, so to speak, and just enjoy being in some of the really cool forts that we get to stay in. We're so lucky that we have access to um, stay in some of these historical buildings overnight. Uh, I always feel very lucky um, to do that. Well, it's it sounds lovely. And I really appreciate you sharing these insights, Elise. I think you've gained a lot from that. And I think we can from listening. Thank you so much for talking to me. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> so we're not finished yet <laughs> because now we're going to go into the the career now that you are hoping to become involved in. I know that yes. you're starting to study. I think it's um, it, it's event planning is sort mm-hmm. of the name of the course. And uh, it's, it's part of tourism, right? Is it? sense hospitality and tourism I think would be the the umbrella that it's underneath the umbrella yes Yes. so do you want to explain well we can go through your history of schooling and 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 the work and what you have been doing and why you're going back to school for event planning what really motivated this and where have you been where do you hope Mm -hmm. to be going sure um I think for a long time my creative pursuits have been very much a hobby aspect, like a secondary aspect of my life. Yeah. When I first went to university, I studied to become a social worker. Um, I learned extremely valuable lessons um, in those four years. I met a lot of very nice people, and I, I, I definitely grew a lot as a person. But I ultimately decided that that was not the most sustainable path for me. Um, and until recently, I've actually been working as a full-time live-in nanny, another job that gave me a lot of satisfaction, um, getting to raise up children and sort of take care of the home as well. Um, very rewarding, but again, not the most sustainable job for me personally. Um, and so this is really the first time that I will be doing something creative seriously but I do think that over the past couple years of attending events um and getting to 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 know and enjoy the behind the scenes aspect of what it takes to run an event and put it together um I decided that to take a bit of a risk and um make it a something that I explore formally in my education. What are you, you're going back to school for this, and we know what motivated you. Where are you hoping to go with this new educational background? How, how uh, flexible will you be as far as where mm. you, where you can work? Uh, you have to study, do you have to study in a particular institution or can you do Zoom study? How, how are you going to approach that? I'm choosing to do this through college. I'm getting a mm-hmm. college diploma. Um, the reason is that I, I think the hands-on aspect is the most important for me. Mm-hmm. So to be able to get placements and experience things firsthand, personally, that's how I learn the best. So I am hoping um, to do that. And that's why I picked a program that offered me three separate opportunities to do hands-on work. And, and which institution are you studying? Oh, at? I'm studying at Seneca College. At Seneca College. Mm. Okay. And what are those three different well, opportunities? Well, I'll have to be placed before I know, but there's three oh, opportunities to, to actually work with people who are already um, in that realm of work and get to learn from them. So I'm hoping to learn a lot. Um, every time <laughs> I've been able to assist um, with the sort of design and implementation of an event I have always learned so much um and had a really good time so I'm hoping that that is a trend that can continue (laughs) and of course you'll meet other people involved in it too so you'll be able to network a bit about how all of this fits together I think yeah that's also a very important aspect is I I want to see what sort of the general community is like in this area because I'm hoping 
to stay in Toronto for at least the next couple of years. We'll see where that takes us. But So I also have to ask you, because you're making quite a change from your original mm-hmm. education, have the people around you been supportive of the shift uh, in a, into a, a, your perspective career? Did they start off that way? Have they uh, moved to be more supportive? Or just how has that transition happened and impacted you? I think there have been a couple people who are definitely, I feel at least, sort of waiting to see what happens before they (laughs) form an opinion on it or not. Yeah. Um, But for the most part, I think I've been lucky to have people who are quite supportive of me and what I do. Um, And some who are more excited than others but i i feel like um i have been in general quite well supported by the people around me um i, I think people are just sort of glad to see me trying something else out <laughs> um yeah but there i definitely have some very strong supporters so that makes it easier to sort of take this this jump because um Sometimes I think I'm more nervous about it than other people are. <laughs> but uh, yes. Overall, so in, in your closest relationships, uh, you're, you're both excited about this new avenue. Yes. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, very, I'm very grateful for that. It makes it a lot easier. Because, uh-huh. you know, whenever you change something about your life, it's all, there's always a bit of a risk involved. And, you know, sure. it's going to pay off. Yeah. But, uh, I I think it will. I think it will. We're going to stay optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> is it is it going to be very expensive for you to do this? Like is it going to cost you a lot to do it? Will you be able to do any kind of uh work mm-hmm. as well as the education part of it to to make some money along the way? It's 2 years, is it? The program that you're in? It's it's one full year. Oh, one full um, year. Oh, okay. So I thought you were thinking 2 years. But... We were there was there are some that are two years, but I felt that I would prefer to do just one full year and then jump into it. Right. Um, okay. So that's that's uh, there's a limit on on that length of time. Then it's, yes. it's, it's yeah. Um, and I think I'm, we're, we're quite lucky that um, here at least college education is significantly more affordable than I think typical university education. Oh yes. So. Seems- um, seems to be yes it it will cost some money but i'm lucky that my family has been quite supportive and is willing to help me with that um and it is still going to be significantly cheaper than my first degree <laughs> <laughs> that's yes. for sure yeah and and you'll be um you've probably done your research Yes. So I'm thinking, uh, are there a lot of opportunities in event planning or will you have to make your own? There, I think it's definitely a growing sector. Um, mm-hmm. There's always people who will need help. Um, people and corporations actually who are consistently looking um, for, for, for people to, to work with them in terms of designing, planning and executing events. Mm-hmm. But I also hope to um, do stuff on my own. Uh, I have often felt that there were not always the kinds of events that I would like to see in Canada. And this is a very big blue sky dream, but it would be nice to sort of play a role in bringing the things that I'm interested in to the country that I live in so I can stop having to take a plane every single time. (laughs) Oh, that would, so the, the LARPing and the, well, the reenactment are here already. So that's, um, it doesn't sound like such a big impossibility. I I mean, it's a nice dream and I think it, it, it would appeal to quite a few people. Don't you, Mm. don't you think? Yes. And yeah. It will take some work, but we're learning. We're taking it slow. (laughs) We're learning as much as we can. What I pick up on, I don't know if we emphasized this before, but Mm -hmm. it's you you want to design not just part of the plan is that you're designing your own programs. You would like to design your own programs. Yes. And and have a more creative approach to tourism, uh, 
what the industry at this point is offering and add maybe a few different aspects to it. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely. I think following COVID, I think there's been a real surge in people who are looking to escape a little bit more. Um, <laughs> interactive theater and sort of LARP has really become a lot more mainstream um, some people might not like that, but I think this can be a very good thing for the industry at large. Um, and I think getting to introduce people to a different way of thinking about entertainment. Um, I'm personally very excited to have an opportunity to to see what I can do. Um, I think there's a lot to learn. I think cre- a lot of creativity is just learning as much as you can to sort of- <laughs> Give your brain that um, mental toolbox to think more. I think the more you know, the more you can be creative because you have so much more to build off of. Um, So right now I'm very much focused on learning and then we're going to see how far I can push myself a little bit later. Well, that's very exciting. And I think because theater, film, all of these things have really changed the Hollywood situation is very different than what it used to be. So there's going to be a big gap, certainly in entertainment. So the whole entertainment industry is almost in crisis in some ways. And so developing the ideas that you are very, that are dear to your heart, sound like they could make a, a contribution in areas that haven't even been explored very much. Yeah. Right. It's a very exciting time for this, Elise. I think that you've helped articulate for a lot of us what's going on, how you hope to contribute, and have some fun while you do it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's the most important part. <laughs> so on that note, is there anything you'd like to say before you we in the interview? Anything you'd like to leave our audience? Um, hmm. I think I'd say if there is something that is pulling you creatively, um, don't worry about looking silly. (laughs) Don't worry about what other people might think. Um, The most important thing is, you know, cheesy as it sounds, being true to your vision of how you want to live your life and what you want to put out into the world. Um, And I think if you do that the rest will follow and I think you'll find that life is much more exciting and rich than you ever could have imagined (laughs) so that's what I have to say that's a wonderful note to end this uh interview I am really looking forward to having you back when you are a little bit further along this journey too and we can explore together how things are going thank you ever so much Elise it's been a wonderful interview with you And thank you. I had a lovely time. (laughs) Thanks.